Well, do be seated. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, as Graham mentioned, we're going to be looking at Revelation today, and we're going to be reading chapters 13 and 14, which I believe are on page 1035 in the Church Bibles. So, Revelation 13 and 14. So this is John who is speaking here. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slaved, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, 
And they were singing a new song before the, before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice, to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,000 600 stadia. Let me pray before we look at this more closely. Lord, how we love your word. It is our joy and delight to read it and to learn from it. Father, we pray that as we look at this passage um, this morning, you will be with us and speaking to us through it, revealing um, the truths that you have written for us to our hearts. And through it, 
strengthening us and shaping us more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Christ has conquered evil. We believe that, don't we? In fact, it's pretty central to everything that we believe as Christians. Christ died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins, and in so doing, dealing a death blow to the devil, crushing the serpent's head as had been promised. And now Christ is reigning. This too is fundamental to what we believe because Christ didn't just come and do the thing on the cross and then disappear. After making purification for sin, Christ ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father and rules there over creation. But if this is true, if Christ has conquered death and evil and Christ reigns over creation, then why isn't everyone worshipping Christ? Why is there still struggle and opposition? Why does it feel like we're the ones who are losing sometimes? Why does the victory lap feel more like running a marathon through treacle? What on earth is going on? But actually, I wonder if in seeking to understand what in fact is going on, focusing our gaze on earth is the wrong place to start. Because we can see what's going on on the earth. We can see the violence. We can see the struggle. We can feel the pain, and we know the difficulty. So what if instead of asking what on earth is going on, we should be asking what is going on in the unseen realm? What is going on in the heavenly realms? Because when we're in the midst of struggle here on earth, our eyes, heavy with the weight of life's problems, are constantly being dragged down. When we live by sight, driven by what we see before us, discouragement is almost inevitable. But we as Christians are people of faith, and we are called to live by faith and not by sight. And this is why I think Revelation is such an encouraging book. It can be intimidating because its style is really unfamiliar to us as modern readers. And so it can feel like it's shrouded in mystery. But that's really the opposite of John's intent. Revelation is an unveiling of what is happening and what will happen in realms currently unseen. It's revealing to us these things so that we will be encouraged and able to endure until that day when our faith does become sight. As Christ, our conquering King, returns to judge the earth and fully bring in his kingdom. And these chapters which we've read this morning, these are really typical of this bigger aim of Revelation. These chapters show us that opposition from the devil is real and it's dangerous. But Christ, the Lamb, has conquered and will return to judge the earth. And so as Christians, this chapter calls us to endure with faith in Christ, heralding the gospel and resisting the devil. That big call is there twice in the passage, once in 13 verse 10 and once in 14 verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. John is calling us to endure. So let's look at these chapters in greater detail as God reveals these realities to our hearts. And the first thing we see from chapter 13 is that opposition from the devil is real 
and dangerous. In chapter 13, we see these vivid and terrifying pictures of beasts rising up and wreaking havoc on the earth. The goal of these beasts is ultimately to draw people away from worshiping God and to instead worship the devil. And I think the two beasts represent different ways in which the devil seeks to gain our allegiance, ways in which he seeks to break us down, to knock our faith and keep us from enduring. The first beast is a beast of destructive power. It rises up out of the sea, and the description is terrifying. The first thing John sees is its horns, ten of them. It's also got seven heads. There are ten diadems sat upon the horns. It resembles vicious predators. It has a mortal wound. Now, these are symbolic descriptions which we'll look at in a second, but the upshot is that this is a beast that is terrifying, a beast that strikes fear into those in its path. Now, in apocalyptic writing, which is what Revelation is, numbers are significant. And the number 10 and multiples of it are symbolic of greatness, large numbers. So when you see something that's a multiple of 10, you're amplifying that thing or that characteristic by a factor of 10. Horns are typically representative of strength and might. And so when we see the beast here with ten horns, what we're being told is that this is a beast of great power, great strength and might. And it's from this strength that this beast derives its claim to authority. That's why the diadems or the crowns are sat not on the beast's head, as we might expect, but on the horns themselves. It's the power and strength of the beast which give it influence. As we read on, we see that the beast is like a leopard, but with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. So this beast is a combination of these terrifying predators. It has the pace and power of a leopard, the vicious strength of a bear's claws, and the jaws of a lion all rolled into one. Now these creatures here are also mentioned in a very similar vision in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel saw a succession of beasts rising from the sea. The first was like a lion, the second like a bear, and the third like a leopard. They were followed by a fourth beast, more terrifying than the rest, which had ten horns. Now, Daniel was told in that chapter that these beasts represented four kingdoms which would come on the earth, four human kingdoms which would oppress God's people and trample kingdoms in their wake. And so what John sees here is the worst of those beasts all rolled into one. This beast combines the leopard, the lion, and the terrifying beast with the ten horns. And as the beasts Daniel saw represented a succession of kingdoms, this beast represents brutality and danger of political human power at its worst. This beast wages war, and people actually start to worship it because of its strength. You see what they said? They said, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? When people see that this beast seemingly can't be toppled, they submit and bow down to it out of fear. They know the consequences of stepping out of line. And not content with the worship of the rest of the world, the beast turns its attention to God and his people, uttering blasphemies against God, waging war against the saints, 
So suddenly, as a believer, there are real physical threats on your life. You're not safe. As a pastor, you're likely to be beaten up for it. Your family might be the subject of threats and acts of violence. Your church has to go underground. Suddenly, the cost of taking up your cross and following Jesus just got a whole lot greater. Friends, this can seem distant to us living in the UK today, but this sort of persecution is real. There are countries across the world where people dare not out themselves as believers for fear of what might happen to them if they do. I have the privilege of leading an international Bible study at church, and it's such a a joy to read the Bible with people from all across the world, people who've never read it before, never encountered God's Word. And we've seen people coming to faith through that, which is a, a true joy. But it's also sobering. I remember once speaking to a brother who had come to faith, and he said he didn't want to share the gospel with his parents and his friends in China for fear of what might happen to them. He was afraid of their safety. He was scared of sharing the gospel with them because he knew what a danger that would be for them in their country. We don't experience this kind of physical threat yet here, but it is really happening. Graham mentioned earlier churches in Pakistan being burned to the ground, oppressed. And this could come to us here too. So we need to be ready for it. Well, the second beast uses a different tactic, and perhaps it is a bit closer to home for us just now, because where the first beast relied on its destructive power, the second beast employs deceptive propaganda. Its warfare is less physical, more mental, seeking to deceive his victims, to turn others against them, and to grind them down to the point of giving in. This beast rises up before John, and at first it looks like a lamb. And remember, the lamb throughout the book of Revelation and through much of the Bible is Jesus. So the beast is deliberately here trying to appear like God. It performs great signs. It even makes fire come down from heaven to earth. Now, where have we seen that before? This is a trademark move of God. God sends fire from heaven in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings fire from heaven in the Exodus, and Elijah calls down fire from God. So when people see fire from heaven, they think, that's from God. But this is part of the beast's deceptive tactics, trying to appear as though it is from God. But the reality is clear, because when it opens its mouth, it sounds not like a lamb, but like a dragon. Its goal is not that people would worship the true God, but that they would bow down and worship an idol, the image of the beast. Now, isn't it true that sometimes the greatest threats that the church faces can come from those who ostensibly appear to be within the church, people who have the trappings of Christianity and profess to be believers, but the reality is different. This can give them a false credibility used to lure people away from truly worshiping the true God as he has instructed us. Well, here in the passage, many indeed are deceived and will worship the beast. But for those who aren't, the onslaught doesn't end there. The beast also employs propaganda, seeking to exclude people from society. Look again at verse 17. 
If you fail to submit to the beast's authority, if you refuse to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, well, you're no longer able to buy and sell. You're no longer welcome in society. And you find yourself cut off. You're not allowed into the shops to get your groceries. Your bank account is cut off because of the things you believe. Your business is boycotted because you refuse to display pride flags in your window. Your church can't meet in that building because they won't sign up to the inclusivity agreement. Your Bible training college can't receive overseas funding without the government's say-so. See how suddenly these pictures start to feel more real. Suddenly, we can feel the breath of the beast breathing down our neck. Because these examples I've given are not made up. Some of them will be very close for you individually or as a church. There are buildings, church buildings, being burned in India and in Pakistan today. Christians who try and sell Bibles and Christian books in China are disappearing, never to be seen again. People are losing jobs or are being turned away from jobs because of things they believe. Institutions like the Delhi Bible Institute have had major difficulties getting funding from overseas because they can't get a renewal for their license. Churches have great difficulty finding buildings to meet because of the things we believe. You guys will know that perhaps more than many. These are not far-flung fantasies that we read of. This sort of opposition is described in vivid terms here, but this chapter is really real for us today. It's real across the world, and it's becoming more and more a reality in our country too. The church in the UK has been blessed for many years with freedom to meet and to preach the gospel, but the cracks have been showing for some time now. And we need to be prepared for what's coming. Being a Christian is not going to be easy. It's not already, and it could get harder. We will face this sort of deceptive propaganda, which could lead to our exclusion from certain areas of society. We might increasingly face destructive power of the first beast too, because it doesn't take long before people's anger turns to physical violence. So as Christians facing this, we need to be clear about what or who is behind this. Who's driving it? And this is exactly what Revelation 13 is showing us. It's made explicitly clear in this chapter that the ultimate source of this opposition is Satan. It's the devil. The end of verse 2 in chapter 13, we see the dragon gives power to the first beast. Now, this is a continuation of the vision from chapter 12. If you look back there quickly, you'll see um, in 12 verse 9, the dragon is explicitly identified as the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, in chapter 12, the dragon is thrown down from heaven. He's conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the saints. But as we read in uh, chapter 12, verse 12, this also explains why he fights on all the more. He's angered. His time is short, and he knows it. The devil has truly been defeated. He has no place in heaven, and for those in Christ, there is nothing he can accuse us of. But this angers the devil. He knows his time is short, and so he fights on all the more, continuing to launch attacks 
at God and his people. This is a sobering chapter. We see the reality of the opposition that we as Christians will face. It's brutal and it's powerful. Indeed, there will be many who turn and worship the beast and will bow down before it, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Surely no one could overcome this power. But how do we respond faithfully to this? Well, for Christians, there is a very clear call, two very clear calls, in fact, for us to answer in this chapter. At the end of verse 10, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. And in verse 18, there is a call for wisdom. We are called to endure and we are called to be wise in doing so. Because wisdom is needed if we are to recognize the beast and its effects in our lives today. I think that's ultimately the message of verse 18. There are many wild and wonderful theories as to what this number of the beast means. People throughout history have said it refers to Nero, Domitian, or even Oliver Cromwell. Some people said Prince Charles. I don't know, but I think the most helpful commentary I read on this book, the most helpful comment was from John Richardson, who said, probably more nonsense has been preached and written on this verse than on any other passage of Scripture. And I don't want to add to that nonsense, but I think this verse refers to idolatrous man seeking to make themselves God. Again, numbers are important, and where the number seven represents perfection or God in apocalyptic writing, six is the number of man. Man was made on the sixth day and has fallen short of God's glory, far short. And threefold repetition has a cumulative effect. So, for example, when we read that God is holy, 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 that's not just saying the same thing three times. Perhaps a better um, translation would be to say holy, holier, holiest. The threefold repetition has a cumulative effect. So, God is the holiest. So, if the perfect number of God was to be seven, 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 then six, six, six is man seeking to make themselves God. But that aside, it's clear that what John is calling us to do is to be wise, discerning, to see the devil at work in the opposition we face, because often it's in very subtle ways. Often it comes from people who seem to be within the church. So as Christians, we need to be on our guard when we hear of new government measures or policies in our workplace or our children's schools. Or if people come to church saying things that we're not quite sure are biblical, we should be thinking of the potential ramifications. Where could this be leading? What's motivating this move? Who's behind it? Now, we also need to be careful. We don't want to become um, hyper-paranoid conspiracy theorists and think that there are sinister ulterior motives behind everything. But we do need to be wise. We need to be on our guard for these sorts of attacks because they are real and they are dangerous. The physical attacks are harder to miss and they can be devastating, but the call here nonetheless is for us to endure. Keep faith in face of them. Look again at verse 10. You see, some believers will be taken captive. Some will even be slain. But John urges the churches he's writing to to endure. And we do endure knowing that ultimately 
Ultimately, we as God's people are protected. We see that in verse 7 and 8. People from every tribe and nation bow down to worship the beast, but crucially, not those whose names are written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Because in all of this, in all of this opposition that we see, God has not lost control. God is sovereign and in control of his creation. The beasts have real power. They are dangerous, but they are also limited. In verse 5, we see that it was allowed to exercise authority. Its authority is not unlimited because it never goes beyond the bounds of what God sovereignly allows. The authority is limited in scope, but also in time. This will not carry on forever. The 42 months in verse 5 is another common number in apocalyptic literature. It's a period of three and a half years. Sometimes we read it as 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time. It's all the same period. And in other words, it's half of that perfect number seven. It's a finite, limited period of time. So the call for us is clear. Endure and keep your faith in the Lamb who was slain. Yes, some will be taken captive. Others will be slain. But ultimately, ultimately those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, we are safe, securely anchored in Christ and his victory. Victory which is already in the bag. Victory which encourages us to keep going. And it's this victory that we see in chapter 14, where we see that the Lamb has conquered. Because though opposition from the devil is real and dangerous, the Lamb, Christ, has conquered. Now, after the picture of chapter 13, which was so terrifying, John looks, and the picture he sees now in 14 is no less noisy, but the tone is entirely different. This is a picture of the eternal praise of the redeemed people of God gathered round the throne of the Lamb on Mount Zion. And the people here, they are marked with a different mark than those in chapter 13. They refuse to bow down to the beast and to receive its mark, and instead they are marked out as belonging to God, bearing his name on their foreheads. And John hears a roar. He says, it's as loud as many waters and crashing thunder as God speaks. But this roar sounds like the sweet music of the harp. And it accompanies the rapturous songs of God's people. Now, last year, I went to a football match in Dortmund. It was Manchester City against Borussia Dortmund. Um, and my friends and I were sat in the notorious yellow wall. Um, it's called this. It's one of the stands at uh, Dortmund's home ground. Uh, it's called the Yellow Wall because it's so steeply banked with people standing all wearing the trademark yellow shirts of Dortmund and the sound that comes from it is remarkable. Being in that stand was an experience like no other. Noisier than I used to experience at Dens Park going to watch Dundee growing up. The noise and passion of the fans was incredible and it truly did send tingles down my spine. But compared to this scene which John sees in chapter 14, verse 1 to 5, even the yellow wall of Dortmund will pale in comparison. 
Because here is a great multitude gathered round the throne, singing God's praises eternally. This is what waits for all those who endure, those who remain faithful and do not turn away in face of the attacks of the devil. Now, this is another one of those passages in Revelation which has invited many and varied interpretations. Some people teach that this is a special group of 144,000 super-Christians. All of them are virgins, as though that somehow made them holier than us mere normal Christians. But I don't think that's right at all, because again, this is a symbolic number. It's representative of all the people of God. I didn't realize how much maths would be in this sermon initially, but bear with me. 144,000 comes from the 12 tribes of Israel representing the Old Testament people of God, multiplied by the 12 apostles representing the New Testament people of God, which multiplied together gets 144. And then remember, 10 increases the order of magnitude. And we have the threefold repetition, so 10 times 10 times 10, 1,000, and multiplying 144 at 1,000, 144,000. This is a number which represents all people of God, the entire people of God throughout all ages of history. And they are virgins in the sense that they have remained faithful to the Lord. The relationship between God and his people in the Bible is often uh, illustrated as a marriage relationship. When God's people turn away um, to other gods and to whore after idols, the language used is that of adultery. So this number is not some group of super-Christians that we have to try and get into. This is a number representative of all the people of God throughout history. So don't be discouraged that you're not in sight. If you are faithful in running the race set before you, we will be there, part of that mixed multitude, gathering to sing praises round the throne of our great conquering king, the Lamb who was slain. And when things get difficult, when we're facing these biting attacks of the beast that we saw in chapter 13, there are a few better things you could do that return to these verses and be reminded of that endless joy which lies before us. Being part of that multitude around the throne, singing our Savior's praises forever. And indeed, even in this life, we get small tastes of us. Some people often say that Christianity is just all pie in the sky when you die. Well, Sinclair Ferguson once responded to that saying, I'm sure there will be pie when we die, but there's also pie now, and it's good. Because Christianity is not just about gritting our teeth to bear it until we get there. There is real blessing now in this life as we get foretastes of the new creation. Hebrews 12 speaks of how we as God's people have come figuratively to Mount Zion and we gather there with the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. When we gather together as we are doing today on a Sunday, there is a real sense in which we are joined with this festal gathering. When we sing praises together, to our God and to each other, we are joining in in the praise of this gathering in heaven. So as we sing, we should sing heartily, loudly, and joyfully. I have a friend who's a musician, and he once said that one of the things he's most looking forward to in heaven is that everyone will be singing in tune. 
And he's probably right, but don't let the limitations on the tunefulness of your singing now put you off. Sing heartily and with such joy that we put to shame those singing on the terraces of Tyne Castle, of Easter Road, Murrayfield, or even in the yellow wall of Dortmund. We look forward to that future day of glory that we see here pictured so clearly. And we enjoy real foretastes of it now. But what else do we do in the meantime? What else do we do to counter these attacks of the devil that we saw in chapter 13? Well, in verses 6 to 13 of chapter 40, we see this proclamation of the eternal gospel by the angels. So look with me there now, please. John sees here a succession of three angels flying overhead, proclaiming the eternal gospel message, the message of the Lamb's victory over evil. And the first angel proclaims, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The second angel follows saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then the third saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Maybe some of you sometime have been asked to give a 90-second gospel presentation or something like that. It could be quite a helpful exercise to try and distill the essentials of the gospel down to a very concise explanation. But if you have done this before, I wonder how similar it was to this proclamation of the gospel here by the angels. It's quite a sharp, on-the-nose presentation of the gospel, isn't it? And we might instinctively cringe or shrink back from it. But everything he said here is true. God is a God to be feared and glorified. He is so much greater than anything in his creation because he created it. Think of the beasts in chapter 13. They rose up from the sea and from the earth. But here we see that God is the creator. He made the earth and the sea. How much more is he to be feared than these beasts who are part of his creation? How much more deserving of our worship is the creator than any of the created things in this world? Well, apart from anything else, to worship these idols is to back a losing cause because as the second angel says, Babylon has fallen Babylon is emblematic throughout the Bible of a rejection of God and a heralding of man, making a name for themselves. And Babylon is also pictured in Revelation as a prostitute in chapter 17 and 18, seeking to lure people away from God, enticing them to passing pleasures of this world. But those who turn to her where they once drink a wine of passion, they will eternally drink the wine of God's wrath. Blood will flow, and the torment will go on and on, 
and they will not find rest. But the fourth voice that John hears in this section does show the route to real rest. Verse 13 says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Those who have rejected the Lord will find no rest after death. Their torment will be ongoing. But for those in the Lord, for those who do endure, who keep the commandments of God, who keep their faith in Jesus, they will find rest from their labors. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As believers, we are fueled by the hope of glory that we see in verses 1 to 5. But it's that hope that is exactly why we don't just hunker down and lie low until that day comes. Because we know the truth of this gospel message, this eternal gospel message. We know that the world, walked by loved ones and strangers alike, is headed for disaster. They're sleepwalking towards judgment. And we who have that glorious hope need to tell them. We need to call them to repent. Because judgment is coming. And in verses 14 to 20, we see a picture of that last day when Christ, the conquering lamb, shall return to judge the earth. Opposition from the devil is real and dangerous, but the lamb has conquered and he will return to judge the earth. Now, in verse 14, John sees one like a son of man seated on a cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. He is told that the harvest is ripe and the time has come to reap. And so the sickle is swung and the harvest is gathered in. Now, the image of the harvest is a common one for Judgment Day in the Bible. For example, in the parable of the weeds, Jesus speaks of how an enemy has planted weeds amongst the crops, which are left to grow until the harvest, at which point there is a separation. The wheat will be gathered in while the weeds will be cast out to be burned up. And that's what we're seeing here. In verse 14, the redeemed people of God are being gathered in, reunited with Christ, their Redeemer, gathered to join in the eternal praise of verses 1 to 5. But in verse 17 to 20, the sickle is put in again. And this second group are not gathered in, but they're cast out. Outside the city, where they're to be trodden, and the blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is not a comfortable image. This image is as brutal as the image of 1 to 5 was glorious. 
but it's not overplaying the reality. Because where the redeemed people of God look forward to the eternal praise around the throne, the rebellious who have rejected God, they face eternal punishment. What we're seeing here is God's righteous wrath being poured out on sin. And it does shock us. Perhaps it shocks us so much because we have a a limited understanding of the true severity of our sin. As those who are still sinful, our view of sin is tainted by it. We fail to see it as seriously as it really is, as seriously as God sees it. And not only this, but we don't grasp fully the depths of the righteousness and the holiness of God. God is perfectly pure, terrifyingly holy, and God's holiness and our sinfulness, they cannot mix. Sin is a complete rejection of God, rejection of his rule over our lives. It's more than just our misdeeds and our thoughts. It's a whole attitude of rebellion against God. And if we take a frank look at our own hearts, we can see this reality. We'll see the ways in which we seek our own pleasure or our own glory over God's. The ways in which our thoughts and our actions are harmful to ourselves and to others. This is true even of us as God's people. And all of this is deserving of punishment. And this is what we're seeing in these verses. The punishment is just. We all know that wrongdoing and evil needs to be punished. We all know that it's wrong when it goes unpunished. But we've already seen that this judgment isn't the only option. There's a stark divide, eternal praise or eternal punishment, gathered in or cast out. And the thing which determines which way you go is how you have responded to the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ has made it possible to enter God's rest. He has had God's wrath poured out full strength on himself. He drank from the cup of God's wrath as he was humiliated and taken outside the city to be cruelly beaten and crucified for sins that he didn't commit. When we read of the judgment faced by those who rebel against God, it is shocking. It is brutal. But this is the punishment Christ faced so that we, his people, can enter his rest, so that we can join eternally singing praises to him, our Redeemer and Lord. So when we see rightly our sin and the punishment it deserves here, it ought to scare us. But as God's people, it also should fill us all the more with awe and wonder at what Christ has done for us in taking that punishment on himself. Meaning we have no condemnation to dread. At the beginning, I asked if Christ has conquered death and evil and Christ reigns 
over creation, then why isn't everyone worshiping Christ? Why is there still struggle and opposition? Why does it feel like we're losing? Well, it feels this way because the devil is real. He is opposing us and he is dangerous. But Christ really has conquered evil. Christ died on the cross, taking the punishment for sin and in so doing, dealing that death blow to the devil, crushing the serpent's head. Yes, he fights back hard. We are afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. We are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Opposition from the devil is real and dangerous. But Christ has conquered and will return to judge the earth. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to respond quietly ourselves and then I'll pray. Father, thank you that your word is so realistic about the state of the world that we live in. Thank you for the strength you give us to endure through difficulty. Thank you for the hope of glory, the promise of rest which is ours in Christ. Lead us, we pray, and keep us until that last day, the day we long for when Christ will come again and take us home. Hear us, we pray, for we ask it in the name above all other names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.